what a lovely beach this is at Cromarty. We're just coming to the end of the sand. The suitors, I've never, I've, it's a long time since I've seen the suitors that calm, Katie. Yeah, it's lovely. It's a lovely beach, it's isn't lovely. it? And your dog's coming for a walk with us today. What's your dog's name? It's Kai, yeah. Kai's just a wee brown cocker spaniel. Lovely. Yeah. He's a lovable rogue. He's recently had his hair I want you to meet Katie Mackay. Katie's a nurse. She spends her life caring for people. Yet four years ago, almost to the week, her elder brother Callum completed suicide and she felt helpless. And that's what gave birth to Team Callum and her own quest to try and get more people talking about their mental health to stop them going through what she and her family have been through. Now, let's, you've, you've brought me to these these, the stones at the end of the beach here, these stones are important to you, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, my auntie's been collecting stones from this beach um, and has been decorating them and drawing um, a bow tie on the front with a lot of writing on the back um, to help me in my mineral challenge. So yeah, these little stones have been, she comes back and forth every week now and again to pick them up. I'm Dan Holland and thank you for choosing to download this podcast. Speaking of suicide is meant to be open and honest. That's the whole point of it. But that doesn't always make for an easy listen. So remember, you can always press pause. And don't forget, there's support available from lots of avenues, including Monkey's Line. And I'll give you their details after we've heard from Katie. Kai's friend, he was a puppy. Oh, he no, knows, does he know that dog? Yes, that's ah. me, Sky and Poppy. Ah, right. <laughs> Spaniel friends. So, did you grow up here in Cromarty? Yeah, Pitt? I've grown up here. We, yeah, we were born here. We lived in a wee flat in Marine Terrace and then just on the shore, actually, around where we met. Um, and then we moved a couple of doors along to Bayview and then that's where we were all of our life, actually. Yeah, my mum and dad were brought up here too. Um, and my dad's always lived here. My mum, she was brought up in Singapore, but um, she's always originally been from here. My family are actually, um, my mum's mum is one of the, like my mum's mum has got 16 siblings. Wow. <laughs> and they all live, they, uh, they've all been brought up in Cromarty. So actually it's really funny because yeah, there's so many of them and everybody will say, oh, are you related to the shepherds in Cromarty? And then you say, yeah, I am, <laughs> isn't it? So that's funny, yeah. So mum is, yeah, well known in Cromarty. So every corner you take, It'd be hard to walk around Cromarty without somebody saying to you, oh, hello, hello. Yeah, yeah so you can't have a peaceful walk very much. <laughs> and, and what was it like growing up here? Because it's a lovely small village. It's for people that don't know Cromarty. Behind us, you can probably hear a boat passing. There's lots of renewable energy work going on at Nig. But Cromarty itself is, is steeped in history. It's a small fishing village, but it's probably, I guess, quite a close-knit community yeah, as well. Yeah, it's really, really small. As I say, when we went to primary school, we were only, we were there was probably only, I think at that time when we were in school, there was a, quite a lot of us, but I probably would say about 50 pupils when we were in um, primary school. Um, and so everyone in your primary school, they were all cousins, we were all friends, and it was really, really close. So you could just turn a couple of doors and you would um, meet your auntie or you would meet your granny. Um, and it was really, really close and everybody looked out for each other. Um, in the winters, it could be quite cold and kind of lonely. There's so much yeah, freedom here. Um, as kids, we just were out playing all the time with you know, all ages. You used to play with younger kids and older kids and that was just what you used to do. So every night after school and whatever, you would be out 
out and about playing so actually you had lots of freedom and the funny thing used to be um, because there were so many cousins when we used to be out playing in the park my auntie my auntie Jacqueline used to just shout at the top of her voice to the children and this used to be from half a mile away and you would hear her roar from the back door to shout <laughs> us to say that dinner was, dinner ready. was ready so yeah. um, everybody used to say oh Holly that's your mum shouting <laughs> because you used to hear this absolute echo of um, Auntie Jacqueline just roaring to tell us all that dinner was ready and it used to just be a funny thing remember when your mum used to shout Holly Reese <laughs> so that was really funny yeah but no it's a lovely lovely place yeah and then um, you obviously then go from Cromarty to the high school and then that's when it then opens you up to this bigger kind of worms of like 700 people and then that's when it opens up to the sort of whole community but Cromarty is a lovely community but also the Black Isle you know it's extended to everywhere so you meet you meet so many people that you know and it's lovely that yeah yeah but it's really, it's really lovely yeah and when you get it on a good day it's great but on a blowy windy day maybe not so much a blowy windy day it's very windy here i've been yeah. here and on a windy day too T- tell me about callum your brother yeah so callum he, yeah of beach? course yeah um callum um was a really well, he was an absolute gent everybody used to say when they met him he always had the beaming smile on his face and he was always so gentle and so lovely to people that even the older ladies in the village used to always say oh callum he's just such a gent they would see them with his friends and he would be one of the only people in his friend group that would stop to make a effort to speak to the older ladies and anybody really he was always just so generous and kind to all these people that he wouldn't pass by without making sure that he had a he had spoke to them or had asked them how they were um so he was really really gentle um, looking back now actually you would think he definitely was very self-critical about himself he played football and he left school and became a joiner um, but he used to critique every bit of joinery work he did. He would critique a whole football match, whether he had the, whether the goal was right or whether he passed the right ball. He'd come home and ask my dad if he had done the right thing and if it was okay. And um, he would go over that in his head all the time. You know, he'd go for nights out with his friends and he'd come back and he'd critique what had happened on the night out and if he was okay and um, you know was he was that sociable what he did and everything like that. And even. Um, when he was in school, he used to critique himself because I remember my mum always saying he had to stand up in his English class when he was younger, as you do the horrid when you have to stand up and do a presentation in front of the yeah. whole English <laughs> class. And um, he actually did this talk and um, my mum always remembers that, that I think that was a trauma for him. He ended up standing up and talking about the death of his granny, which actually only happened when he was a kid. Um, but actually, I think the traumas around that made him then really... Um, he critiqued himself and the whole standing up in front of people then completely um, kind of yeah made him really quite anxious so then when he got a bit older yeah as I say he was self-critical um, but he was so very sociable and he was so lovely he did his joinery apprentice and then worked with a joiner in the Black Isle for years and years and he was so particular his joinery work was fabulous you know he was really really good um, but then he got fed up of the joinery he left school when he was in fourth year did the joinery and then decided actually that it was too much so actually my dad um, works offshore he's always worked offshore since we were kids and so he used to be away for long periods from sort of could be from six to eight weeks sometimes ten weeks um, so he introduced him to the offshore living. So he went and started working offshore um, just as a standard rigger. And he was on different boats with my dad and different boats with people that my dad knew. So he started doing that and was going to all different places in Norway and, you know, up to the North Sea and stuff. Um, and, and how did he get on being on the same boat as your dad? Because it's, a, without being too stereotypical, it's a pretty... yeah. It's funny that so it's a male world yeah, offshore. Isn't so it's it? funny you say that actually because um, my dad is um, he's worked offshore as I say for so long. He worked offshore. He started at Nig and then went offshore after that. And actually he's um, 
known very quite widely in the offshore community and he's got a funny nickname actually they call him wombat so it travels quite far actually there's nicknames so anyway um callum when he went offshore couldn't believe the amount of people that had due respect for my dad because he looks out for all of his like colleagues he was really really good with um the eastern europeans that work on the boat he's really good for them and they all have higher expectations and they really respect my dad so actually callum when he went offshore then it came back to callum that actually um how well respected his dad actually was and how good he was at his job so i think they got on great and i think callum really looked up to him for what he actually had achieved on the offshore because when you're at home you don't know what's going on but then when my brother went offshore on the same boats and on different boats everywhere he went this and he, they, he told them who he was everybody on the boat would say you're not wombat's son are you and then that and you know and Callum then I think really realized how much respect my dad actually had and I think that then helped Callum in his journey yeah. offshore because then he realized how much respect and how hard of a worker my dad really was in the offshore industry so that was that was I think a good thing for him to see actually what because you couldn't see that at home because he didn't work at home so then when he w went away it then made my brother realize actually how much of a valued guy he was offshore and, and what was he like for you as a big brother yeah, um, he was he was really really great. Yeah, he he was just a, he was pretty quiet. I would say, um, I'm really quite out, outgoing, quite noisy, quite chatty, and I'm quite confident. Whereas he would be a little bit more quiet. Um, but he absolutely loved a laugh. You know, he'd sit back in the crowd, and he'd um, listen to what was all going on. But then, if the time came, he would soon pipe up a comment and would be quite cheeky and quite humorous um, but it would have to be when he was okay with that you know and um, but he yeah I really looked up to him we had the odd wee fight now and again but nothing like um yeah nothing like other siblings you know we got along really really well um, and yeah yeah I looked up to him and he looked after me when I went to high school I remember everyone would call me as a crybaby I used to cry a lot actually as a kid <laughs> which is quite funny everyone used to say oh Katie you were always bubbling your bottom lip would always go and um, but actually I went to the high school and I felt like I was getting bullied at one point and he and his friends stood up for me and he went to those group of boys and says look um, don't don't gang up on my sister and ever since then I managed to have a I had a bit of a chip in my shoulder and I felt like I was okay because I my brother stood up, stood up for me then and I always remember that and they never ever did it again and um, so he did definitely he looked out for me as a sister yeah which was really really nice um, and we got along great yeah as time went on as we got a bit older our relationship I would probably say when we got a bit older into our teenagers and when he was a joiner it maybe um it maybe got a little bit strained at times because I would be upset about things that he was doing that would upset my mum um, he started using cannabis, um, which is absolutely fine. And now when I look back to it, actually, it was OK. Um, but I, my mum was always so upset about that. And I obviously then took the upset from her, which made that difficult. And then that did give a bit of a dynamic to our relationship because I felt like he wasn't respecting the family and my parents. But actually, um, looking back on it now, you just wish it wasn't it wasn't a... It wasn't a problem it and you just a, you just yeah. let him do what actually he probably needed to do because actually from his slight... Um, wasn't he was just he lacked probably a little bit of confidence and that maybe just helped him um keep at bay and also you know his self-criticism and how he critiqued everything he did when you look at that now you think actually that is hard to maintain it's a hard thing to keep up being so self-critical about everything that you do was he a perfectionist yeah i would say he was a perfectionist yeah he was always so perfect perfect in what he wore in as i say in his joinery work he'd look over everything that he did and even his football match he would want everything to be perfect so that's yeah it's hard to it's hard to keep up with that and actually when you look back you think that in itself is is so hard to keep up with that actually you, you, you can't keep up with that it's hard to maintain a perfectionist life isn't it um, and he was he, he got a flat and the flat 
was it was a bit run down. It was a fourplex plaque when he moved in and he ripped it from top to bottom and the whole place was like a new build by the end of it. And he absolutely loved that. But yeah, you, you soon think that actually that's hard to keep up with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned he did a talk about your granny at school. Mm-hmm. Did he, and he maybe found that difficult. Did he ever, did Callum ever talk about difficulties in his life to you or did he ever talk about his mental health no Callum, no his mental health was never discussed he would never say that he had mental health problems he never ever seeked advice from a gp to our knowledge he's never ever gone to anybody for help um life just plodded on and yeah he had these he was a perfectionist and he was so self-critical but i don't think he ever identified himself that actually he could get help for things that were going on in his mind that actually um, it was hard to keep up with, um, yeah. And I suppose then, as he got older, which makes it difficult. Um, he, to us, and now looking back, you know, he had everything. He had a great flat. He had. He loved his cars. He had a great job. He had a good bank book. But actually, there was something not quite right with him. And actually, it was. It's. It's sad now when you think back that he couldn't identify that there was something not quite right. Um, and I don't think I don't think the use of drugs helps either. You know, I think the come downs from using drugs can be really, really um, hard. And I think French groups have to look out for one another because you the feelings of um, when I think when you're in a come down. I've never personally had any experience, but they say that you can feel terrible. And yeah, it's it's a place where I don't think anybody really wants to be. What do you think held him back from talking to anyone? Was it? that he was a young man in the Highlands and we know that that in itself makes people, makes it hard for people to talk. Was it the industry he was working in? Was it his self-pride? Was it that perfectionist in him? What do you think? I think it probably could be a mixture of all of that. I have noticed, obviously, Calm's passed away now. He's been dead for four years. And I've only, I could say from back then to now, the um, discussions around suicide and men's mental health is so much more talked about back then than back then now. So I think it definitely was, um, yeah, living in the Highlands, being a man, not knowing where to talk up. You know, as I say, my dad was so well respected in the oil industry that actually, yeah, it was a self a bit of pride. Um, yeah, that I don't think he ever identified that actually the help could be there, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, I think you could be right. I think it could be a mixture of all of those things. Yeah, um, and I think then being caught up in the midst of um, feeling like he was happy in a good place, but actually maybe being caught up in a place where he wasn't so happy when he was alone, um, but he wasn't able to reach out to a place where he could have found help. You know, because actually the night that he passed away, I had asked him over for macaroni for dinner and my mum was coming for dinner. Our dad was offshore at the time and me and my boyfriend were in our, our house and my mum came over for macaroni and I know he'd been out the night before watching football and on a night out. So I thought I'll send him a message and say, look, there's uh, macaroni on tonight, head over. And I didn't get a reply. So then I tried to call him and asked him over and there was still no reply. So that he, he didn't want to obviously burden anybody. I don't think he, don't think he wanted to give anybody his worry. Um, so as I say, yeah, you're right. The pride of it all, he didn't, he didn't seek the help that he needed. Yeah. We only need to talk about anything you want to talk about, and if you want to stop, just stop. But that afternoon, when you invited him over for macaroni, when did not answering the phone or not being able to get hold of him escalate into worry and a concern about his safety? 
Yeah, I think on the evening when mum was there, she says, oh, I've tried to call him, he's not answered. And I had tried him and he hadn't answered. And we tried to call him a couple of times. And then we just thought he's probably actually sleeping. He's had a rough night the night before. He's probably not wanting to bother us. And uh, to be honest, we weren't in a, we, our relationship wasn't in a place where I would text him every day. I wouldn't text him, you know, we could go a couple of weeks without texting and that was quite normal. But if we were over at mum's house or I had seen him, we would catch up all the same. But we weren't into texting every day. So actually we thought, oh, he's probably just actually killed and he's probably sound asleep. And um, we left it at that. And then the next day I was actually at work in the hospital. I, I'm a nurse there and I was at my work and I remember... Um, Mum had, I was on, it was first thing in the morning and you go for your first morning breakfast, which is probably about 10 o'clock. And my mum texts saying, I've still not heard from Callum. Um, what do you think we should do? And I remember being in the staff room and my colleagues had said to me, um, I says, oh, we've not heard from my brother since the night before. And I remember somebody in the staff room and it'll always stick with me, said to me, if you've got a reason to be concerned, you've got to go. Because I was only in my first year in my train, I had only just not long qualified by then. And I thought, yeah, I've got to go. And his flat was only in Inverness and our cousin Holly, she just lived around the corner. So while I was getting changed out of the hospital, I phoned her and said, look, can you drive down to his house and see if there's any response or any any sort of movement? And so she was at the door and she had a wee baby, our little um, niece Amelia, she was just wee then. And um, he, she went to the door and she says, no, I'm not getting anything, there's no response. And during that process, I was in the midst of driving up there and drive to his house and still, you know, I didn't. I don't think we had. I thought that he had. Um, I had really had thought that he had had a heavy night. He had gone to his bed and he maybe had aspirated. He had maybe been sick. And me and my nurse had him being caring. I thought that I was actually going to have to go in and try and resuscitate him. Is what I had actually thought. And it wasn't that. Yeah. Which is tricky. It is. Yeah. Particularly when you're used to helping people all the time and there's. Yeah, and then. That then just brings you straight to this sadness that you that you couldn't have helped him. Yeah, and yeah, then the traumas around all of that and what you discover. Um, yeah, it's really tricky. Do you want to pause for a sec? Yeah. I'll just be a couple of seconds. You take all the time you need. All the time you need. you or someone you know are worried about a friend or a family member who you think needs some help then you can text Mikey's line on 77 86 or contact them via messenger web chat or Twitter they're available Sunday to Thursday 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. and Friday to Saturday 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. You're right. Yeah. Let's take a walk. Okay. It's getting noisy behind it is, us. Yeah, that's, there's that, a that's there's a boat moving just up racket, there. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully our bodies will be able to help keep the noise out. Yeah. There's someone rowing out there, between the suitors. That's uh yeah. I think that might be the skiff boat. Yeah. yeah. I'm not. I didn't see them pass us that way, so I'm not sure if it's. I think it could be Cromba. You've said it's, it's just over four years. We're talking at the end of October now, it's almost four years to the day since yeah. Callum passed. Let's talk a wee bit about grief, because everyone grieves in a very different way, don't they? And how how have you grieved for the last four years? If that's not too much of an yeah, impersonal no, of course, yeah. question. Yeah, no, I think at the beginning, um, the 
the feelings, as I say, as that me being a nurse, you want to help people, and the overwhelming feeling of actually how Callum must have felt to the point that he had to take his own life is overwhelming. The fact that he couldn't call out to help us and the sadness that he must have been in um, is overwhelming for for us, for me, you know, back then at the first couple of years. It's hard to get your head around how he must have been feeling and how sad he must have been to feel that actually he could no longer live in this world. Um, so that back then was really hard. And then I think from there then you kind of progressed up feeling of, um, feeling alone. I always, it's just me and Callum. We were just, yeah, just the pair of us. We have no, I have no other siblings. And so then after that, the feelings of being alone and actually um, having to, you know, the thoughts of life and my parents and looking after them as me just being on my own. He was the older brother, so I think that's when then it then hits you that actually he's no longer there to help me and help protect me and help look after us in the future. So that, that took a long time to get over and it still does. Because I, I completely agree, there's people that are only childs, but they've always been only childs and that's, that's what they grow up to know. Whereas I've known that there's always been two of us. So then I've had to change my dynamics to be, knowing yeah. that actually, yes, there always will be two of us, but actually here in life, there's only just me. And then it, you sort of get, you have to get your head around how you're going to manage and how you're going to move forward and things, because you don't know what's around the corner. As I say, the sudden surprise of Callum's passing, this could happen any time, you know, you don't know. Um, so that then, that's, that's, that was overwhelming. And then after that, then you kind of move. And I, I wasn't, I'm not, I was, I've never been really angry about with him. I've never, I've, I've always just felt sad that he couldn't ask for help. So I can't say that I've ever felt angry towards him about anything that he's done or the thoughts of him leaving. That's never, I've never been angry with him. Um, it's just more the sadness that he had. And then as time moves on, um, I've just gone to the point where I want to try and help people. You know, back then when he passed, we said, oh, we'd try and arrange, sort of do um, something in his memory to try and keep his memory sort of alive and raise money to try and help people. And we've always tried to work out ways in which we can, you know, try and help him um, and try and help other people so that they don't have to feel like they're alone um, and now four years on um, yeah I say as I say back then years ago in the first couple of years the traumas and the images that you hold with you is so raw and that lasts there a long time I did go and see some help for that and that definitely helped because um, being young and not actually it's, you don't expect any of that but actually it's real, it really is real and actually it lasts with you for a long time and it's still there. But I've learned to actually progress and learn to, I've got coping mechanisms to try and not do that. You can be in quite a dark place yourself and you can really go into those feelings, but you have to learn how to move away from those feelings. And I've learned as years has gone on to try and take yourself away from that, you know. Um, and that's that's it's only it's only the way that I'm managing, and that's the only way I manage to move forward is by taking myself away from those traumas. Because if not, you will keep traumatizing yourself for for keep you can keep doing it, can't you? Whereas actually, I try to move forward, and I've built up coping mechanisms to move forward with that, and um, which has helped. So those things that I had back then, to uh, year one, year two. Um, aren't there as often now and I have to focus on them so actually in the grieving process I was I can see even in other people how being so raw to now and um, how you move on and I think um, it's now the stage where you're as I say your life with this sort of long-standing sadness for him yeah and, and what about 
the the close family that you described at the start of our conversation have you all developed coping mechanisms um, we're very open you know um, our discussions are very open we discuss Callum all the time Callum isn't somebody that's gone anywhere you go with cousins with aunties he's always very well discussed and even with blokes he's ve he's discussed his friend group discuss him so it's not somebody it's not something that we've stopped talking about because we very much keep it alive our little nieces and nephews it's very much alive with them he's still with us with them and we keep that going which is which we feel is the best thing to do instead of actually not talking about it because that's the problem with actually not talking about it it needs to be talked about more and um, so I feel like as a family we talk about him and what's gone on and things like that but I do feel like there's probably there's probably parts of our family some people in the family that maybe haven't seek the help that they need to help but actually as a family I think it helps all of us by being so close-knit and by talk discussing it by um yeah by making sure that everybody's heard um I think is what we do um, but peop individual people's feelings and how they feel I can't say that we all discuss that much and um, which is probably something that probably should be discussed a bit more and um, but it isn't something you know it's a hard one to discuss because you don't want to relive what you've what's happened before but sometimes actually doing that helps people move forward doesn't it but we've tried to just keep the sort of childhood memories alive and by going back to Granny's Heel and Hame and taking our cousins with us to make them realize that yeah you might be in a tent or a caravan and you might be drinking beer and it might seem really uncool but actually it's not cool you can have just as much fun in Granny's Heel and Hame with your family around you loving you all the same with a barbecue you know so we do try and keep those things alive and try and ask our younger cousins to come so that they you know feel included and they feel yeah part of it but you know because I think Callum didn't want to come on the family holidays because it was uncool but it's just trying to make them realize that it is cool and that you are loved and if you come along you will see that you've got the love you know and um, so yeah while we've been talking on the beach here in Cromarty, Kai has been digging trenches in the sand. <laughs> There's, it's, it's like bomb holes on the beach here now. But he's got a, he's got a red bow tie on his collar. Can yeah. You, tell me the significance of that red bow tie. Yeah, so back in July in 2017, we went to a cousin in Cromarty's wedding, actually, in Strathpeffer. And um, mm. Callum working offshore and things, you don't always get to go to these opportunities he missed weddings you know you miss social events but actually he was home at this time that we had this wedding on and so he thought so hard into what he was going to wear and thoughts were will I wear a kilt will I wear a suit what will I wear and he was absolutely delighted he got this new suit from Slater's and we were all so surprised because he rocked up with this navy suit on and he had this red bow tie on and so that was actually probably one of the last times as a family and all of our cousins that we were together celebrating our cousin's wedding and he just looked so dapper and so smart with his big grin on with this big red bow tie and he probably really did get a lot of I'm sure they all took the Michael out of him to quite a lot of extent but he felt really good in this suit and he absolutely loved it so um ever since then actually that image and that picture of him with his red bow tie has um stayed stayed with everybody and for his funeral that was the dress code was red bow ties and so since then I've um tried to keep the red bow tie alive and Kai has always got it on his collar lovely yeah lovely. so that's what's sticking out of yeah. him there <laughs> now you've described certain points while we've been talking about a sense of at times of feeling helpless but and as a nurse your natural instinct I guess is to want to help people you've just completed what you've called your 30 Monroe challenge yeah isn't it yeah which ultimately you're helping more people tell me about this challenge Katie because yeah it, it's been a big challenge for you hasn't it yeah so in February just passed um Callum would have celebrated his 30th birthday so um, 
as a family we had decided that we were going to do something in his memory for his 30th birthday to try and raise money but with Covid and everything we were originally thinking a Kaylee or some sort of event or something like that but actually with Covid it's hard to do but with Covid when it was here it was hard to do that so I actually decided I wonder if I could do something a th sort of 30 something with 30 a challenge so I decided yeah I would I've never climbed a Monroe before and I during lockdown I seen people doing Monroes and it looked great and I love photography and I love the outdoors so I thought oh, I'll give it a try so I had gone around asking would it be achievable would it be achievable so I decided from February to February in the year of his 30th birthday I would try and climb 30 Monroes in his memory by raising awareness of suicide and trying to help and um, bereave family and support groups and things so I had um yeah, I've been, I, I kind of set myself to do that. And um, as I say, I started on the 1st of March and just on Saturday past, I finished Monroe number 30 and um, with a, a group of 18 people and a couple of mountain leaders, we went to Cairn Gorman, blistery, um, 45 miles per hour winds and snow um, and we managed to get there. Um, and so that was really, really good. My giving page is currently, I think about, £8,100 wow. and I had set out to do 30 minerals at 30,000 feet at and to raise three grand but actually it's at eight grand so it's marvellous um, and what makes it even more special was on Saturday past it would have been four years that Callum passed away so actually we all went as a family to Cairn Gorms there was a big support group out at the bottom and all of our friends that came to the top with us it was um, Callum's friends and my mum's friends and my friends and everybody that had done Monroe's with me we all went and it was really really special yeah it must have been a really emotional day to be standing on top of Cairngorm. Yeah, well, actually, I have found, to be honest, I think I've been holding it all in very, very well, and I think it probably will hit me like a ton of bricks. But I have found those times gone on that you can be on the top of a mountain and meet a complete stranger, and I've got charity T-shirts, and they'll ask you what you're doing. And in that midst of them asking what you're doing, um, to tell somebody what you're actually doing brings you to tears. And on the top of mountains, I've done that, and I've had complete strangers crying with me on the top of a hill. So actually, on Saturday, with 18 friends, um, my friends, family and Callum's friends, I've probably learnt a coping mechanism that if I broke down at the top of that hill, the whole place would have too. And I think, I don't know, just me and the type of person I am, I managed to hold myself together and I think I probably did that for all of our friends because the rippling effect when you do break down after, some, after we've experienced what we've experienced, I've noticed that it's quite hard for people to come back from that. Um, so I can, um, I think it'll probably hit me soon. I'm not sure when, but it probably will. I'm probably still living on cloud nine at the moment, but it might come back down with a big ton of bricks. Um, yeah. And and you've been leaving stones on top of these Monroes as well. Yeah. You? So the stones, my auntie's been doing these lovely stones for me. Um, on the front, we've got a red bow tie, and on the back, it says um, hashtag Team Callum. And also, we've left a quite a um, quite a. Um, what would you say, a really um, key message that actually my brother left us a message and a note um, and on that note one of his key things was to stay strong and stick together so on our stones on the back of them that's what it says and since I've done that it's actually made me realise that lots of people have got in touch with me, complete strangers have found my stones and have got in touch to say look I've actually lost my brother to suicide and that day that I was on that mountain it's really carried with me and your brother and my brother have come with me for this whole walk and um, so it's just helped raise awareness and I'm now still in touch with that guy and um, there's another lady who I met that one day we stopped on a Monroe and 
had some lunch and um, she um, got to the point where she asked what is it that you're doing and we explained to her at our sandwiches and actually time had gone past we didn't catch her name but she then called out on Facebook looking for us because she was desperate to try and find us because our story well my story really touched her and she was so happy to move forward and she's helped share my page and has got further donations because she wanted to um, raise awareness as well and as I say I've only probably left stones on about 20 minerals um, but as time's gone on I'm noticing more and more that people are getting in touch from the stones that I'm leaving so I do intend to leave stones on every mineral that I go to to try and see how far I can get this message to go yeah fantastic and it's about opening that conversation isn't it yes it's of course starting yeah. that conversation yeah final two questions Katie how do you remember Callum yeah, I remember him as being really, really lovely. He's a total gentleman. He's um, friends with everybody. He'd never, there was never anybody that he wouldn't like or that wouldn't like him. He was a real lovable log with a very big smile and had a heart of gold. Yeah, he really was. Yeah, a gem. Yeah. And what would you say to anyone who might be in difficulty now, not sure what to do, not sure who to talk to or where to go? What would you say to them? Yeah, I would say that there is. It might not be. It might not be a big organisation. It might not be a. It might not be any. It might not be any sort of big company. But there is any. There's lots of people out there that are willing to listen. You know, as I say, um, anybody from walks of life is willing to listen to you. And you actually don't know what each person is going through. And actually, you could just turn in a cafe or in a train station and start explaining that you're feeling quite low. And that person that you speak to would be probably very willing to talk to you. So actually, it's just to look for the help. Look out for your friends. Um, yeah. And make sure that you're there for one another and appreciate that actually um yeah that anybody can go into a low anybody can be in a bad place they might seem great and they could be the life and soul of a party but actually um you need to look out for each other and be very open with one another yeah katie thank you i think callum would be very very proud of his wee sister yeah I hope standing so. here talking yeah. with gravity today thank you for sharing your story with us on speaking of suicide a reminder of Mikey's line, if you or someone you know needs help or advice, you can text 07786 207755 or contact them via Messenger, web chat or Twitter. They're available Sunday to Thursday, 6pm to 10pm, Friday to Saturday, 7pm to 7am. Here's Shona McPherson from Mikey's line with a few thoughts for you to mull over. Listening to Katie describe what she understands might have been going on for Callum, the difficult time that he'd been having in his own head with being incredibly critical, with struggling with anxiety, it's, it feels important um, not in any way to judge Callum for not getting help. None of us can know what that was like for him, but it feels really important just to remind all of us these the, the difficulty of feeling of intense anxiety, the, the ways that we feel about ourselves when we are hard on ourselves and critical on ourselves, this is not an unusual way to be in the world. Many of us suffer from these difficulties and there is help available. Yes, it's not always easy to get, there's waiting lists, but there are charities like Mikey's Line that can help when you feel in crisis with these things while you're waiting for support or counselling. So it's really important to remember that and also to think what is stopping us, particularly stopping men in the Highlands of Scotland or throughout Scotland in, in getting this help when they are in mental health crisis. And K 
Katie is sort of becoming part of that, the solution for that as well. Through her own journey, she's talked about the intense grief that she experienced for two years, the trauma, getting help for that. And now, four years down the line, feeling the, the, the shift from the intensity to this living with the ongoing sadness and making making meaning, raising awareness through her brilliant um, Monroe challenge and leaving these meaningful stones on the rocks to encourage conversation in different ways. So if you are struggling with difficult thoughts or feelings, please don't be alone with this stuff. Reach out, Mikey's line is here for you or friends or family, whatever feels comfortable for you. A huge thanks to Shona and all the team at Mikey's Line for the work they do. The podcast platform is supported by D&D Paving Limited. Please do like, share and comment about the podcast. And if you want to get involved by sponsoring an episode or telling your story, get in touch with Mikey's Line. Speaking of Suicide is an adventurous audio production and the music is Nana by Tom Ireland. <laughs>